0: Lord, we are humbled by your word because, Lord, it is so hard-hitting, in particular in this book of James. And I ask, Lord, that you would allow us to be te- teachable this morning, that we would be listeners who want to learn and grow and be fashioned and shaped by your truth. And so, Lord, what we, what we know not would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? And would you allow me to simply be your mouthpiece for this text? And so, Lord, that our people would be nurtured further along the path toward maturity. And, Lord, that we would not simply be people who behave rightly, but, Lord, that our hearts will be in a right relationship with you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I remember when I was in college, between my sophomore and junior years, I was the head lifeguard at a Christian camp in northern Michigan, but in order to be that head lifeguard, I had to go get some training as a water safety instructor to make sure that I was certified and the camp was all good. And so I, I went to a, a camp um, that was taking place at a Young Men's Christian Association camp. They were hosting it. They were running it. They were kind of you know, in leadership of, about the whole thing. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Because at that point in time, I, I'd heard some not-so-good things about the YMCA, that they had drifted in their biblical position But I had come with, you know, an openness to say, all right, what's going to happen here? Certainly I was there to get the training. Um, And uh, so when I arrived, we gathered together and there was kind of a big assembly and they gave us our room assignments and stuff like that. And there there was no even inclination about God except to say this is the YMCA and even the C in that wasn't even expounded on. And then we went to our cabins and got, you know, got settled and we went to the waterfront where all the stuff, all the swimming stuff was going to take place. And we finished with some exercises and came up to get ready for dinner. And we all gathered outside the cafeteria. You know like I'm saying? If you've been to camp, you know what I'm talking about. You usually gather outside the cafeteria, you do your prayers there, and then you enter in. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is all right. You know, the camp director gets up and he says, Hey, it's so good to have all of you here. And in just a minute, we're going to pray before we actually have our meal. And I thought, aha, good. They're taking advantage of the opportunity of the meal uh, and that prayer to kind of slip in a gospel kind of moment for the people that are there. And then um, he said, okay, uh, we're going to pray and, um, you know, please join me as I pray And he says, and pray to whatever God you wish to pray to. And then he began to list off a number of gods. And I'm not joking about this. He said, you know, God the Father, Jesus Christ, Buddha, Allah, Hare Krishna, the Dalai Lama, even Barney the Dinosaur if you want to, trying to be cute. And I was thinking to myself, seriously? Seriously? This is the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. And by your words, you have drifted so far away from Jesus Christ. That the very reason for your existence has been so flippantly set aside by that call to prayer. And what I found out was that although God was still present in name, he had actually been cut out of the heart and soul of that organization. He had been eclipsed by the pluralism of the wisdom of the world that wants to avoid being offensive at all costs. Now, this is not an isolated incident. This was my experience interacting with that particular organization. But there are many institutions that once boasted solid gospel-centeredness that are now promoting the opposite of biblical Christianity. Now, do you know that most of the Ivy League schools were started either as seminaries to train pastors or as missionary schools to train missionaries, in particular, to certain Indian tribes? You may or may not know that. Harvard was a Puritan school. It began in 1638. The founding presidents and instructors insisted that there could be no true knowledge or wisdom without Jesus Christ. Here is an excerpt from their rules and precepts adopted in 1646. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone should seriously be... uh, Seriously, by prayer in secret, seek wisdom of him. Everyone shall so exa- exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that they be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of languages and logic and in practical and spiritual truths. That's Harvard. I'm not going to go through them all in detail, but I'll mention them. Yale was a Puritan school, started in 1701 because by that time, Harvard had already drifted away. Princeton, a Presbyterian school, began in 1746 as a result of the First Great Awakening. Dartmouth started in 1754 as a missionary training school. Columbia was first known as King's College and was both a seminary and a missionary training school. William and Mary was founded by the Church of England. Rutgers was formerly Queen's College and was started by the Dutch Reformed. Brown University was specifically started to train missionaries to the Indians. But I think if you were to go there, you would be hard-pressed to find the gospel-centeredness that was at the core of those institutions when they began. You might go there and you might find a chapel, but in that chapel, you would likely find other figures, not just a cross, because of the inclusionism that we have in our culture. You see, over time, the wisdom of the world has eclipsed the wisdom of God in those institutions. Now, today, they may be regarded as great institutions of higher learning, but in God's eyes, They are graveyards of gospel proclamation. You say, that's a pretty harsh statement. Friends, it's just history is all it is. Institutions start centered on God's word, and over time, theological atrophy takes place. And they move away from their gospel-centeredness. Now, friends, if such drifting can take place in the institutions that I have mentioned, then certainly the same drift can take place in our hearts. And it's important for us to see that. In each of those institutional examples, there were people whose hearts were once seeking to follow the commands of Scripture, but who over time capitulated to the wisdom of the world. Yet in their thinking, they were pressing on for God's glory. It seems strange, but they think they're doing what God wants them to do. When in fact, what they're doing was wandering from the faith. And friends, it is to this disparity that James now focuses attention. He is going to challenge believers not to just believe God for salvation, but to maintain his sovereign rule over their whole lives at all times and in all circumstances. That God's wisdom would permeate through everything they do. And that it would be so strong that it would not be eclipsed by the wisdom of the world. Now friends, as you look in this passage, there's really two statements that are made. Things that people say. And I want you to consider them as we begin here this morning. A kind of introducing the topic. James begins by talking about what we should never say in our planning. We should never say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But we should always say, if the Lord's w- Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Now these are both general statements, but he's making a point. See, the first statement, what we should never say, is the result of the wisdom of the world taking root in our hearts. The second statement is what we should always say, is the result of humble submission that has allowed the heart to be fashioned by the implanted word that is the wisdom from above. And so James is is now talking about certain issues based on things he's already talked about. He's bringing all those things to bear, and they they are there in the background helping us understand what is taking place in this particular text. And he's saying when we follow the wisdom of the world, we become independent thinkers and planners and we forget God. And it's a condition that we find ourselves in when we praise God because he's sitting on the throne on Sunday. But from Monday through Saturday, we want to be in charge. And we function basically by the motif of self-rule. See, on Sunday, God's in charge, but the rest of the week, I'm in charge. It's that kind of mentality. And friends, that is a drift. That is a slow moving away from gospel centrality. Now, it may not be something that happens overnight. It may not be something that happens all at one time or, or as a result of an immediate change in your life. But it happens little by little, by degrees. We've allowed the wisdom of the world into our hearts and the practical reign of God in our hearts has been replaced by worldly thinking. So then we think, it's fine for God to rule on Sunday, but outside of my Christian community functions, I will be my own ruler. It's subtle, but it's a form of self-sovereignty, self-rule. So the question we need to ask ourselves at this point is this. It's a couple of them. Is God sovereign over my life? Secondly, is Jesus Lord of my life? And I think if we, we talk to each other and we ask those questions, we would say, yeah, he's sovereign and he's Lord. Then we need to ask another question. In what ways have I allowed the wisdom of the world to shape my heart so that in a practical way, he has been removed and I am ruler? Now, friends... I'm not talking about people that are out there. I'm talking about people that are in here. This is something we all struggle with. It is. James is speaking to believers here. Some would say he's not too sure he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to some people that might be present but aren't believers. But I think the the tone of this letter is he's speaking to believers. You see, sometimes we drift because of theological belief statements that are faulty, For example, God helps those who what? Help themselves. Well, where does that leave you? That leaves you by saying on Sunday, God is God, but on Monday through Saturday, I've got to be the one who's helping myself. God wants me then to be the ruler of my life. You see what I'm saying? There's a problem with that theology. Certainly, we have to do certain things, but God is always God. Or sometimes we drift because we really don't know what God says, and all we have heard is the wisdom of the world. It might be the implications of immaturity. It might be the implications of not actually spending time in the Word or having the Word wrongly taught. And so we lean on the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. It's natural to us. It makes sense, so we follow its lead. At other times, however, we know the truth. We know what it says. We know what God wants, but we've allowed the wisdom of the world to eclipse God's truth and so replace it with beliefs and behaviors that are contrary to God. And so we're guilty of living our lives as double-minded, practical atheists. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Double-minded and mean we're trying to live in one world and live in the other world. But we're also practical atheists because in certain aspects of our life, God is not ruling. We are. We don't believe he should be there. We want control of it. And as a result, we are practically functioning as atheists. Friends, that's a a dangerous place for us to be. So this practical atheism, this desire to live life arrogantly, independent of God is pervasive in our culture, and that should be no shock to us. People don't want God to control what they're doing. But what is a shock is when that attitude is present in the church among those who name Christ as their Lord, as their master. We don't just say, well, Jesus is Lord on Sunday. We say Jesus is Lord, period. Big difference there. And we who are God's children live by that truth. That's, I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a greeting. Jesus is Lord. It was a statement to identify yourself as a follower of Christ, that you've humbled yourself before his leadership and that you want his guidance in your life. We should listen to the words of Kent Hughes who says, The reality is that many, if not most Christians, attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. And he goes on to suggest that we've changed Augustine's mantra, love God and do as you please, to do as you please and say that you love God. Which is old school talk for saying, I'm going to do what I want now, and ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> See, this is, this is the way it is. One of the, one of the biggest challenges, I think, as, as a pastor and counseling people, is people might you know, have come to me at times in the history of my pastoral ministry and said, I know this is God's will for my life. And what they're saying is God's will is something that is clearly not God's will. But they are, in their mind, convinced it's God's will. But they've used God's will now to say, this is what I'm going to do. It's a tool to accomplish what you want to, want to, what, what you want to do. So what James is speaking to here is not simply presumption on the part of believers, although that is what is happening here in this first statement. He is really speaking to the evil sin of arrogantly living our lives, not according to his will, but according to our own will. So James here is calling us to pay attention to the danger of practical atheism in our planning. As we come next next week, we're gonna see this practical atheism taking shape in how we handle our finances. But for our time this morning, we're gonna talk about our planning because the issue here is not the fact that people are planning, but it's the heart behind the planning that James is addressing. Now, just think about the structure of this text. There's really two sections, 13 through 15 and uh, 16 through 17. It begins with these two opposing attitudes in relation to our planning, and then we have these two essential rebukes in relation to our planning that we need to pay attention to. So let's first of all look at these two opposing attitudes. These two opposing attitudes. And they are basically a reflection of those two statements. But he begins by by using this expression, come now. Now, we can kind of read that a number of different ways, but how that expression is used is to introduce an argument addressing imaginary opponents. So James doesn't have a particular person in mind, but he knows that this is an issue in the context of the church, and so he's bringing it up. But it's it's this kind of statement that says, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Listen to what I'm going to say. This is a matter of importance. And what we have here then is the serious challenge to the listeners here pay attention to these two opposing attitudes as it relates to planning because those attitudes reveal the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God in the heart of the believer. Remember, what you say is a reflection of what is in your heart. So each statement reflects an attitude of the heart. So there's a wrong attitude. Let's think about that wrong attitude. It's what we should never say. We call this... Practical atheism. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, this is an attitude that is driven by the wisdom of the world. And it's an example of what we as Christians should never find ourselves saying. And James is going to relay to us now four dangers that we encounter when we embrace the wisdom of the world rather than submit to God's sovereignty as it relates to our planning. So first of all, it's self-centered. You may not catch this in the English translation, although it is there and it's understood, but I want you to focus in on the word we in verse 13. Today or tomorrow, we will go. Let Let me kind of lay it out how it would be laid out with the Greek text here. We will go today or tomorrow. We will go into such and such a town. We will spend a year there. We will trade. We will make a profit. You get the point there? We, 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 we've determined these things. They're saying, we've determined the time of our departure. We've determined the town where we're going to conduct our business. We have determined how long we will be there. We have determined that we will be able to do business there. And we've determined that we will make a profit. Their plans are firm. Their expectations are certain in their own eyes. And James is confronting the attitude of, of self-sufficiency here that gives way to practical atheism. We are going to do this, and if this is what we're doing, then we don't need God to tell us what we're going to do because we've already determined what's going to happen. And so practical atheism is when we claim to be followers of Christ, but in practice we refuse to to allow him to have his place in our lives. And we all struggle with this because there are decisions before us. And sometimes our flesh rises up, and our emotions are stirred, or our passions are reigning, and we make decisions based on those things rather than based on the wisdom of God. We've all done it. We're all probably going to do it this week. And, and James is saying, look out, because this is not what maturity looks like. You see, we end up becoming the center of our universe rather than God. This is the same subtle message that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. You can have his position. You don't have to live dependent on anyone. You don't have to be submissive. You can live in a world where you're most important and you make all the decisions. You can choose that fruit. Friends, this world is not your birthday party. I don't know if you've ever been to a birthday party or hosted a birthday party for your children and your child is you know, the center of attention and they're the ones that they're getting ready to blow the cake or opening their presents and there's, there's often one child who's really upset. Why? Because they're not the center of attention and they forget that this is not their party. They think that they should be getting all the the attention, all the glory, so to speak, all the gifts. And sometimes that's how we function in life. We think that this is our birthday party, and this is for us. When we're attending someone else's birthday party, and it's God's, it's a celebration for his glory. And we're wanting to be central in it when he's the one who is central. This universe was not created for you. Everything that you benefit from in this universe has been given to God or given to you by God. Everything in this universe is not about you. It's all about God and his glory. And you, by his grace, have been gifted the privilege of enjoying what God has created for his glory. Come. Enjoy. Celebrate. But remember. I am God. So, this is not your universe. But you've you've been placed in this universe to to be a faithful steward of what God has given you, not what is yours. You know, this morning I I prayed for our our offering. And I think our right prayer is we recognize that all of it is God's. And we're saying, as God has prospered you, give back from what God has given you. It's not like, well, this is mine. God, I guess you can have this. No, it's it's all his. But he's only asking you to give what out of your abundance. Okay? Now friends, you're not the center of the universe, but the wisdom of the world will teach you otherwise. It will stroke your desires, it will stroke your pleasures so that you think that you deserve to have your own pleasures satisfied Because you are the most important person. It is self-centered. We will go and do this. We will go to this town. We will set up a business and we will make a profit. Secondly, it is pleasure-driven. In this case, by materialism. So in this case, the pleasures are what you perceive are your right to pursue and gain pleasure from. You will go, you'll end up in some town, We will spend a year there, and we will make a profit. Now friends, it's not wrong to want to be successful. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to make a profit. Capitalism is something that flows through the pages of God's Word. It is wrong, however, to have your heart shaped and fashioned by the world's thinking so that it is ruled by those wants. We want what we want. And when we want what we want, we will do all sorts of things, in particular sins, to get what we want. Now, remember, we've said this a number of times, good things become bad things when they become Ruling things. Because when they are ruling things, our desires now are wanting to be satisfied. They become idols in our hearts that we will sin either to get or we'll sin to stop others getting so that we can get there. And friends, you and I place ourselves in the danger of this self rule when we allow the desires of our hearts to be shaped and fashioned by the wisdom of the world. Because when that happens, what we want and desire become far more important than what God says and what God wants. Now friends, this is happening in our hearts. This is a struggle we all face. And so the question maybe right now is this, what are you chasing after in your heart right now? What are the things that are driving your decision making? What do you find yourself dwelling on and wanting to achieve or goals you want to get? Here's a fun activity for you to do. Go home today and look in your closet and ask the question, why do I have so many clothes? Why do I have so many shoes? And this week, I jumped in, you know, you know what it's like, you jump into your closet. And you're like, okay, what's there? And I started to pull out stuff. It's like, I haven't worn this for a year or two, and I'm probably not going to wear it again. Why do I still have this when someone else can benefit from it, right? How about you go into your garage? Ask yourself the question, do I really need all of this? And someone's been saying to you, no, you don't. Get rid of it. Look in your pantry or refrigerator. How many cans of whatever it is do you have sitting back there that have expired? But you had to have it. It's a problem with going to a place like Costco, isn't it? Got this big, huge thing, you know, in the back there. And, it's like, and, it's, and you're like, oh, no, it's too big to actually use, right? You ever had that experience? Like, I want to make some soup, but I got this big, huge tomato soup, and there's only two of us. What am I going to do with this big thing? It was a good idea at the moment, but that's how we think. We want more. Our our pleasures want to be satisfied. When I was a youth pastor, we used to play a game called Bigger and Better. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, You divide up into teams of three or four. There's always one adult with a car. And you gather in a room, and everyone is given a toothpick. And then the idea is that with this toothpick, you've got to trade that toothpick for something bigger and better. Now, it can only be with people that you don't know. Okay? So you go out into the neighborhood, into the towns, wherever, and you're like, hey, can you trade this toothpick? And someone will give you something. You have two hours. By the end of two hours, young people are coming, thankful that they have pickup trucks. Sometimes you have chia heads. Sometimes you have old skateboards. Often you'll have, like, TVs. One time we had, like, a, I think a, a Whirlpool washing machine or something like that. All started out with a toothpick. Now, friends, the reality is that if we let ourselves go, let our pleasures go, we always want something bigger and better. You know what it's like. You just bought that thing that you were looking to get. And as soon as you get it, there's a bigger and better one coming out. It's called an iPhone, guys. You know what that's like, right? Right? I just got my latest, whatever the, you know, the 10 or whatever it is. And as soon as you get that, it's old news. It's not good anymore. It's not sufficient. It doesn't do that gizmo thing. I want the better one, right? When the phone is supposed to be a thing you can call with, and all right, I'm getting off topic here, but you get the point. That's why in the Proverbs, there's this leech that says, give, give, give. We want more. And so it's driven by our pleasures. This wrong attitude is driven by our pleasures. Not only that, self-centered, it's pleasure-driven. It's also overconfident. Look at verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring, is what James says. This is one of his answers to their statement and to their claim. See, we act as if we know what today and tomorrow will bring. We'll go to such and such town and spend a year there trade, and and we'll make a profit. And it rolls off our lips so easily, but the reality is we don't know. And friends, that not knowing is the mystery of life that God is in control of. We don't know where we'll be this time next year. We don't know. What is going to happen next month, we don't have control even over today. And we can plan, and it's good to plan, but there's no guarantee that our plans will take shape. Do we understand our limits? Or do our limits drive us to the word of God? To rest in God's wisdom and not in our own. James isn't saying it's sinful to plan. He's saying... It is sinful to have a plan that in your heart, you're guaranteeing will actually be realized. I will get that house. I will be cured from my cancer. I will restore that relationship. I will gain that promotion. I will. I will. This will happen. Proverbs 27 verse 1 clearly warns us. Do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Friends, you do not know the result of these things. You can't be certain of those things. And that is why it is God that you lean on in your planning. And this is where humility kicks in. When you know that you, what you can and can't do, when you know that you're truly dependent on God, when you know that he has given you the ability to plan, but... That only the Lord can be the one who accomplishes it, then you come and you nestle yourself under Him and leave that planning to Him. I, I just I think back to the history of our country and all those people that, that came west on the Oregon Trail. and they would get to Boulder, Colorado, and the journey's been reasonable, and then they look up and they see the mountains. And a city rises up. Why? Because people don't want to go over the mountains. But then there are some who press on. And they encounter all sorts of difficulty and danger. And you have experiences like what we have locally in, in Dahmer Pass. Horrible experiences where people tried to get through but suffered so much in hardship. That they treated each other in horrible ways. And suffered. And then of course some made it through. But even then when they finally made it through they still had to make a life. You just don't know what is before you. This is the mystery of things. And life is full of mystery because we don't know. So we have to trust God. We have to lean on him. Do our best in planning, but leave things for his sovereign purposes. It is self-centered. It's pleasure-driven. It's overconfident. Here's the fourth thing. Ultimately, it is blind to eternity. This is what happens. Notice what it says here. James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. What James is saying when he says, what is your life? He's saying, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. That's the idea of it. You think that you have it all uh, figured out, that you have all the time in the world, but you're wrong. Life is a mist. Mist. And he's anchoring life in the context of eternity. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, right? It's a temporary place for us. It's not where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. Now, you know, you say, I'm going to go into such and such town, and I'm going to have a year of trade there. Really? How do you know? A year of trade is a briefer period than your life is amidst. One of the problems with our Western culture is that it has no eternity. There's only the here and now. This is only the life that matters. So go out there and make what you can of it. Throw caution to the wind. Live it up because this is all that you get. And in order for you to live it up and enjoy your comfort, pleasure, you have to exercise power. You have to seize control. You have to achieve a level of affluence because time is running out, and this is all you have. Panic, panic, panic. Sin. Harm. But what James wants his readers to hear is this. Life is more than a mist. Life now is preparation for eternity. If you're going to plan well, then you will need to plan with eternity in mind. For anyone listening today, remember this God's commands only make sense if eternity is in view. God's promises only make sense if eternity is in view. God's grace only makes sense if eternity is in view. Stewardship and sacrifice and holiness and serving others only make sense if you and I have eternity in view. And when we embrace the wisdom of the world, we slowly become blind to eternity because our eyes are moved from looking up to him and looking ahead to heaven to focusing on the here and now. And when we are blind to eternity, eternal things don't matter. And when eternal things don't matter, and then God ultimately doesn't matter and only what matters is me and those that I love. The rest of the world becomes my playground to manipulate so I can satisfy my own desire. Now, friends, this is, this is hard stuff that James is talking about. This is not just about planning. He's not, he's not challenging our ability to plan. I, I'm not typically a planner. I function by routine. I know what I have to get done through the course of a week, typically. When I do have to plan certain things, I actually, I think, do a pretty good job of laying out. Here's what's happening. Here's what I have to do. blah, blah, blah. James is not saying that any of that is wrong. What he's getting at is not so much the planning aspect, but the heart behind the planning. Well, let's jump to the next attitude. And this is not the wrong attitude, but this is the right attitude. This is what we should always be saying. And he doesn't have much to say because there's a sense in which he's already said it. And he summarizes it by this expression. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, so rather than doing verse 13, we say, if the Lord wills. What does this expression mean? Unfortunately, it has become a kind of a a Christian catchword. In other words, it's, it's an expression that is spoken but lacking its intended theological oomph. That's O-O-M-P-H. And friends, when that happens, we need to remind ourselves about the importance of those words or expressions. We need to re-oomph some of those words back into our vocabulary so that they have deep meaning to our hearts. So that we say, if the Lord wills, we're not just kind of like throwing it out there as if it's just kind of like a simple caution to what we're saying. That we're truly recognizing, I've made my plans, but God is in charge. So if the Lord wills, friends, is a wonderful expression that communicates some very important heart attitudes. First of all, humility. I've done my best to be faithful as a steward of my life and plan accordingly, but although I have applied my wisdom, I must leave the execution of my plans to God as he knows what is best. That's humility. Closely to that is submission. And submission says, I may plan, but God may have other plans for me that I am not aware of. That doesn't mean that my plans are not good stewardship. It simply means that God was desiring to use my good stewardship as the means to bring about his plans. And so I have to have a heart of humility and submission. In fact, if the Lord's will comes from the idea that Jesus gives in his model prayer, where it says, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on heaven, or on earth as it is in heaven." And so as parents, we pray for our families saying, "Your kingdom come, Your will be done in my family as it is in heaven." Or as husbands we would say that about our marriage, or as workers, we would say that about our job. God, your will be done." Here's my plan, here's what I'm seeking to do, but your will be done. Turn your Bibles to a very, very familiar passage of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 and following. We know this, and we quote this many times. In fact, if you grew up in the church, this is one of those key texts you probably put to memory. But I want us to read it afresh here in light of what we're talking about. And I want us to press on. Because it's poetry, and there's a stanza of poetry that completes the thought. Proverbs chapter 3 will begin at verse 5. You know verse 5 and 6 probably by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, see, this is one stanza. It's all working together as one thought. He's saying, listen, you need to lean on God. You need to to trust God. You need to have him as the place that you are resting. And if you do that, you are not saying, I'm wise in my own eyes, But you're saying, I fear you, Lord, I I turn away from evil. In the context of what we're looking at here, that would be the wisdom of the world that is seeking to get into our hearts, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, in light of what we've just looked at as far as the wrong attitude is concerned, let's just kind of turn those around and think about what does planning according to the will of God look like? Well, first of all, it is God-centered, not me-centered. Since God is sovereign, then he is sovereign over my whole life. Since Jesus is Lord, and he's my master, and has the right to guide my life as the good shepherd, he doesn't just want part of me, he wants all of me. Not just on Sunday, but throughout the week. Not just the times when things are good, but in every circumstance. It is God-centered. Secondly, it is kingdom-driven, not pleasure-driven. In other words, I may do a great job at planning, but it is what God wants out of that planning that is most important. Does God want to teach you something when your best plans fail? And they do, don't they? And oftentimes, we don't respond in the right ways. Does he want you to meet someone that you would otherwise never meet except God Has changed the plan? Does he want to open doors that you could not imagine when you were making your plans? See, they're kingdom driven. The point is, my plans are good and helpful, but they're always to be driven by kingdom principles. What is God doing with my plans? To bring glory to himself. Now, many of you may know Ed Bessard's cousin, Dave Bessard. He was my worship leader at a previous church. Um, good guy, great musician, um, and uh, toward the end of his time, um, he, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer, I think, in the throat. And uh, it, was, it was certainly a difficult time, and he went for, for chemotherapy, and um, that was a difficult time. But one of the things he did is that he would take his guitar with him. Now, I've never been in those contexts. He said it was a big room, lots of people in this one big room, and they're all kind of hooked up, and they're there for a number of hours going through what they were going through. And he says, I took my guitar, and I would start singing worship songs. He says, because I had a captive audience. And these were people who were struggling, they were suffering, and many of them were looking death in the face. And he would be saying, listen, if it were not for my cancer... I would not have the opportunity to be in this presence and minister to these people in this way. Now, did he want the cancer? Absolutely not. I mean, no one wants that. But he's, he said, okay, this is, this is God's lot for me. God must have a plan with this. Therefore, I'm going to take advantage of this and see what God wants me to do and be in that context. It's kingdom-driven, not pleasure-driven. Next, it is God-confident, not self-confident. We certainly don't know it all, but we certainly know one who does. (laughs) And that's why we lean into him. Finally, it is eternity-focused, not blind to eternity. We need to anchor our plans with eternity in view. We always say, if the Lord wills, because we recognize that he is the one who's in control. Well, those are the two opposing attitudes, and I realize our time is running out. The front end was going to be longest. The back end here was going to be short, because these two essential rebukes are very, very simple. They're very clear in the text. First one is found in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and it's basically saying this. Your arrogant boasting is evil. James is taking up his first rebuke, and he's saying to his readers, you're so proud of yourselves that we planned all these different things, and we're going to do this here, and we're going to do that. But all such boasting, he says, is arrogance. It's evil. It's a sin to live and plan without any regard for God. And Friends, one of the ways the world tries to press us into its mold is to say to us, we don't mind if you believe in God, Just don't take that belief too seriously. Don't let your beliefs hinder you from making your way through this world. The world not only leaves God out of their planning, but they boast about it. It's like the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3, 17. It says this. I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, we are desperate, desperate for God. Remember what James has already said in verse 6 of the same chapter, God opposes the proud. But not only is our arrogant boasting evil, hear this, practical atheism is sin. See, James is moving from the specific sin of boasting to the general principle of sinning by omission. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is practical atheism par excellence. You know what to do, but you deliberately and conscientiously choose not to do it. And it's a scathing rebuke, not only for the original recipients of this letter, but also for the contemporary church. So when you hear someone say, I know what the Bible has to say that I should do about X, Y, and Z, but... What's happening there is the but is followed usually by a sophisticated argument of excuses that is fueled and fashioned and shaped by the wisdom of the world. It's screaming in the heart of that individual. You really can't trust what God says. He's not reliable. You've tried him before and look what it has brought you. Now do this instead. You didn't get what you want but I'll give you what you want. Now, often when I've heard that statement by someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, this is how it goes. I know what the Bible says that I should do, but I believe that God would want me to do X, Y, and Z. See the problem with that statement? God has already said what he expects, but you in your mind now have been fashioned a thought to say, But God doesn't want me to do that. And now you're using God as as an excuse to not do what he's already said that you should do. But we throw the will of God out there as this kind of catch-all to act and think and behave in the way that we want to behave. Friends, this really isn't about planning at all. This really isn't about what we say at all. This is about what we believe to be true in our heart. This is a heart issue, and that's what James is getting at here. He's not so much concerned about planning. He's concerned about the heart of boasting and arrogance that says, this is what I'm going to do. And he's saying, look out, because your life is just a vapor. You think you have it figured out. That's because you have abandoned thinking about God in your life. And friends, that can be true for us. We can be practical atheists in so many different ways. We say, God, you can't have this. I've got a conflict in a relationship, God. I'm going to sort this out my way, not your way. And financial difficulty... God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to sort it out my way. You go on. The wisdom of the world kicks in. God is set aside. And somehow we find ways to kind of paint the picture that we're doing what God wants us to do when we're not. (laughs) Now, I'm not here to get into all of your lives. The Holy Spirit's going to do that himself. But this is something we struggle with all the time. Now, just in conclusion, there's just really two things I want to say here. What we need to do to bring our plans back under the umbrella of God's sovereignty? First of all, stop living a double-minded life. Stop, you know, we're all doing this to some degree, right? This is part of maturity. Is like, what are the what are the ways that I can do less of this? Having one foot, so to speak, in the world, being fashioned by the wisdom of the world, and the other the other foot being fashioned by the wisdom of God. We want to we move along so that that is not what we are doing. So we want to serve God faithfully. We need to see that God is sovereign over our homes, over our driving, over our social media, over our relationships with our neighbors, over the, our presence in the workplace, whether it be coworkers or clients or support staff or janitors or bosses, that person who's sitting across from me on BART that day. Now, friends, hear this. There's a difference between I'm going to go into my boss's office and let him or her know that I am not happy and that they are going to have to do something about it, and if they don't, I'm going to get the union involved and make their life miserable. There's a difference between that and, Lord, you know that there's an issue here that needs to be dealt with. Help me to be faithful to you, respectful to my superiors, careful with my words, impartial, and filled with your wisdom. How quickly we go to the former rather than the latter. So stop living a double-minded life and then start to live a surrendered life. And by that I mean, let's take the nuggets that are in this text that help us understand what that looks like. First of all, humility. Living our lives with humility being diligent to plan as faithful stewards of God, but covering those plans with the blanket that says, if the Lord wills. Secondly, mystery. What would life be like if there were not any mystery? This is part of the joy of of life. I wasn't expecting that to happen. Uh, It's always always convenient. We need to be ready for our plans to be hijacked by God. God. Enjoy the, the mystery of not being fully in control of what and where it brings you. For some of us, that's just, ah, how can that happen? Because we want our life so ordered. But there's a mystery. Third, teachability. <laughs> Allow God to show you through the changes he makes in your plans that he is good and knows what is best. And finally, sovereignty. Rest in the might. And the power of God, who sent his son to die on the cross for you, drew you to himself and breathed new life into your soul. The fact that God does that is demonstration that he is worthy of leaning into because he's sovereign. Life isn't going to play out in all the ways you expect. But it is going to play out in a way that God has or is provident over. And so we lean into him during those times. So stop living that double-minded life which is natural for us all. And determine to live a surrendered life. Lord help us today. You have touched on a nerve in all of us Lord. Maybe there is someone here that would be as drastic as the claim that you make at the beginning of this text. But often, Lord, these thoughts and these ideas and these these nuances, Lord, are there in small ways in the things that we do. So help us, Lord, to filter those down, to be able to see the ways in which our thinking and our heart's desires have been fashioned by the wisdom of the world. And what we need is to recapture the wisdom of God in those areas so that we can seek to live in a way that would honor and please you, that we could truly say, if the Lord's wills, we will do this and we will do that. And do it, Lord, for your glory. Help us today to sort through that. We ask in your precious holy name.